0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I had the best of all possible raisings from the bookies to the sharks to the card sharks, pool sharks. I learned more about human nature than any kid could in any school of life. And all the guys were good to the kid and trusted the kid. And they'd talk around the kid. They wouldn't talk about murder or bank robbers, nothing like that, but the kid heard that stuff.
0: By the time he was in his early 30s, Billy Sunday Burt had become one of the most powerful and most feared men in Georgia. As the end of the 1960s was approaching, he was a partner in the bootleg business with Ruth and Harold Chancy and he was the official enforcer and hitman for the newly formed Dixie Mafia. And he operated a pool hall called the Winder Recreation Parlor at 63 Athens Street, which served as a front for his illegal gambling and was a safe haven to plan his contract arson, robbery, and murder jobs. Young Stoney was now along for the ride and had a front-row seat to the inner workings of his dad's booming business.
1: He made $1,015 a week just on Poo Hall running it normally, which was ten dollars to $15,000 a week now and money-wise. A dime was still silver. And he, he kept a card game going day and night, which he always won, so he probably won double that on the card games. And it was just kind of like a carnival. It was exciting, and I was privy to that. It's hard to explain. Not that they included me. And, and, and made it a point Let me hear it. <laughs> but between overhearing and seeing the next day and the day before, it wasn't a puzzle. If it was a puzzle, it was a 10-piece puzzle.
0: From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Red Clay. Though the men tried not to be too blatantly obvious in their conversations, Stoney picked up on a lot, as kids often do when you think they aren't listening. He learned that Billy got the money to buy the pool hall in an unconventional manner back when he worked at the Gainesville Stone and Rock Quarry. A co-worker, simply nicknamed Half Moon, had taken to a VFW hall that doubled as a bustling underground gambling house in a nearby town called Colbert. Billy would rob that gambling house the very next night and walk away with thousands of dollars.
1: The money was so good that he didn't see the benefit of working anymore. I heard him tell by many people that he made the remark, I can make more in one night than I can work in six months. What kind of fool does that?
0: And being that gambling was illegal in the first place, it's not like the people being robbed could really go to the police and report it. So it was easy money, all things considered. And Billy... Of course, liked easy money. Except for killing a public official in broad daylight, it seems there really was no job too big or too small that he wouldn't take for the right price.
1: When I was a kid, Lums Hot Dogs were my favorite place. And they steamed their hot dogs and, uh, and beer. And for some reason, they were just that delicious. And all of a sudden, uh, one day I wasn't there. He went and got his brother, Bobby Burt. He said, I always said he'd rather have Bob with a sawed-off shotgun than any three of his guys in a, in a tight. But he did not let him go on any murders. He never let Bob go down the dark path. He loved him. He said, Bob, we got an easy job, son. Pay $500. He said, now look, the door's gonna be open the back door. We got to go in there and double check the pilot light. Well, they went through the place and found every pot of light, Made sure it was off. But there was this one little room with a small door that Bobby passed. So then went outside and got the gas and kerosene. Now they use a mixture because when you burn something, you don't use gas unless you want it to blow you to hell. You use kerosene because it's slow start or diesel. But then to get it going, the last thing you use is gas. So they went through there and as he was coming out, spreading the gasoline, went in to get out the door, he seen the groom. Opened up, and so he didn't see a blue flame in the hot water area. He closed the door. He said, Bob, get the hell out of here now. And they both ran out the back door, and he made it just, just a few feet to a little three foot tall block retaining wall, jumped behind it at that moment. Building them boat off the damn map, And cement box fell all around them within feet of them. And if one had a hit them, it'd have killed them. So he was obliterated. Not by them lighting, but by that damn pilot. That's how close they come. And he said, uh, $500, good money is 66. But it wasn't worth getting killed for.
0: Now, at this point, I'm curious, as you might be, about Stoney's early life, his role in all of this. The burning question I have is, well, Stoney's a kid and he's hanging around with his dad and all these other members of the Dixie Mafia every day, overhearing the illegal things his father is clearly involved in. Not to mention, he now always has plenty of cash on hand, and new cars and expensive jewelry on. Stoney must have been wondering, where did all this money come from? Does he not think this is wrong? Or did he wonder, why does Dad leave at 11 o'clock at night and not return until the wee hours of the morning, or sometimes a few days later? Surely, even as a child, he wasn't that naive. Did Stoney just not care about any of this?
1: When, when you're an adult, think you're whispering the kid hears every word like it's a freight train. So by the time of 1968, 69, I probably was know more than any one person living about it all. Just from what I'd overheard. But I was conditioned. The thought of repeating or telling it was just not even in my vocabulary. I was conditioned. When, if I see my dad bring a safe home and peel it open... I'd go on to sleep and go to school the next day. I was conditioned. That was normal. If he toted a man in and put him on the table and took a bullet out of him and toted him out, I'd go on back to bed.
0: Um, in case you missed that, that was, if my dad toted a man in and took a bullet out of him, I'd go on back to bed.
1: You become conditioned, you'd be amazed what can become the norm.
0: I guess I'll just have to take Stoney's word on that. But I guess it does kind of make sense if you think about it. If that's just how it was from the time you could remember. That would be the norm. Stoney was the apple of his father's eye, and Billy was Stoney's hero. He was this larger-than-life man that everyone seemed to like and respect. He helped people when they needed it and expected nothing in return. He would lay down and die for a true friend. He had a soft spot for animals and children, and he treated his family like gold. And he taught these lessons to Stoney at a very early age.
1: He was the best father a son ever had. He was a good husband, except for the adultery, which was the common thing back then. It was a man's world. Except for that, he was the best husband a woman could ever have. He treated my mother like a baby.
0: Yeah, he really just said, he was a good husband, except for the adultery. And Billy did have many mistresses through the years, which clearly is something his wife Jenny was tolerant of. He apparently made no attempt at hiding this. He would run around the small town with different women, but he was upfront with each of them that he was married and made it crystal clear that none of them would ever take the place of his wife.
1: I never seen my father, unless he was doing business, out partying, that he didn't have a beautiful woman sitting on what he called the hump. He kept a Pretty little, uh, one time it'd be a red velvet, another time purple velvet. He kept a pretty little comfortable pillow on that hump between the bucket seats so when his hand wasn't on that four-speed, it was on them legs. He always told me, son, a man's gonna go with pretty women and uh, what a woman don't know won't hurt her. But don't never take money from your home and spend on that woman. That makes you a sorry son of a bitch. And if you feel like you caught something back then, you yeah, had one thing you catch—it's called gonorrhea. They call it the clap. <laughs> he said, if you think you caught something, go by the doctor, get you shot of penicillin, and have a headache for a week too. Don't ever take nothing home. Now that was just as much advice as today's people tell their son, "You make sure you put your seatbelt on." But he made no bones about—he was a married man. We here to have fun, baby, and fun you'll have, but don't won't be all deeper.
0: I met a woman named Louise Jackson who can attest to the womanizing ways of Billy Burt.
2: Actually, I was Louise Blunt. I'm Jackson by marriage. And divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced and married and and (laughs) Billy took a liking to me. He saw me downtown and he wanted to go out with me. I wasn't 13 and 14 years old, maybe 15, 16 some of the time. I wasn't your average 13 and 14-year-old. I looked a lot older. Thank God, in older age, I look a little younger. <laughs> Don't touch.
0: <laughs> Billy Burt's reputation with women, as with most things, preceded him.
2: I knew who he was. I was scared to go out with him. told him I couldn't go out with him. He said, oh, yeah, we're going out this weekend. Went home, told my mama, and she said, well, you just tell him you're not going out with him. I said, you don't understand. This is Billy Burt. You don't tell Billy Burt you're not going out with him.
0: Louise maintains that Billy and her had a kind of relationship for years, but that it never went further than friendship. But even with the infidelities, Stoney, at the time, thought his father was the coolest man alive. And I get it. Because Billy treated him, in many ways, like an adult. And that's just what a young boy often wants from his father. He was just one of the guys. He felt included. Respected. Respected part of something special and secret. He was privy to things that very few people were, even his mother and siblings. Billy bought him a brand new car that he would drive to school before he was even a teenager.
1: Nine years old, brand new, super sport Camara, you know, top of the line, 396. And I'd wreck it in a month, don't worry about it, made to tear up. We had more money than any but he, uh, my father didn't respect money. He made it to spend it.
0: He could stay up all night if he wanted to, as long as he got good grades. He gambled with gangsters and ran the pool table like a shark before even hitting puberty. He stood in the shadow of his larger-than-life father and was untouchable in his own right.
1: By age eight, I could do trick shots on pool tables that grown men would be amazed at, and I could just run the table. But when it come to cards, my goal was to beat my dad. I always wanted to beat my dad because I know I could do it. Because I know the basics of the card early on, and uh, I could count numbers, and I got better and better and better. Well, by the time I was nine, I couldn't be beat by anybody my age and most men, but most men wouldn't play me because who wants to play a kid? They couldn't take my money, but then they wouldn't let them. But one this one night, him and his boys went to sleep in there, and there was about eight of them, and Sonny Lee was one of them. So Sonny said, "You wanna play some poker?" And I said, "Yeah." Now every night I'd rack balls, and I'd make between one and three hundred dollars in tips. So we started playing not poker. We started about three thirty, four o'clock when everybody passed out on the pool table with benches. And at seven o'clock, now all through this next two and a half hours, I was winning so much that Sonny would say, <clears throat> "Stand up for me." I'd stand up. He boy, I know you cheating. Ain't nobody wins that much. He said, Damn. So that went on all night. My daddy woke up. And he looked over and he, he said, us intently playing. He said, y'all been playing all night? I smiled. I said, yeah. And immediately he said, Sonny, you better not be taking that boy, Bunny, now he's just a kid. And Sonny, look, this is sincere. He said, Bill, this boy cheating on me. I know he is. I just ain't figured out how. And I seen my daddy with she didn't on my phone. He said, Damn son, how much is he want off of it? He said, about eighty bucks. He called more ribbon over the next few years. All them boys, if he had any idea what was gonna come to him in ribbon over his life, he wouldn't have said nothing.
0: It was there during the late nineteen sixties that Billy Burt's Dixie Mafia really kicked into high gear. Burt was now pulling jobs at an alarming rate. Sometimes two or three in a single night locally. And he would travel to Florida, the Carolinas, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas, wherever he was paid to go. He might be casing a bank, burning down a building for insurance money, or carrying out a hit. It takes a small team to do this properly, and he added a few of his friends to the operation, as well as his brother, Bobby Burt, to what we'll call the inner circle of the dixie mafia the boots on the ground so to speak the muscle
1: now let me clarify the dixie mafia to me was my daddy and his boys bobby brown bobby gaddis willie hester charlie reed sonny lee bobby Burt, his brother and when he was in a tight his first cousin ralph black who was by no means a gangster he just loved him dearly and ralph would die before he talked Those were the boys and
0: Don Cooper. Each man would get a cut of Billy's pay on any given job for their part.
1: And he was doing jobs uh, from 60 on, whether it be whiskey, robbing a liquor store. uh, So many jobs, he would use every one of them.
0: Don Cooper, an employee of Coca-Cola at the time, was really more of an honorary member of the group. The guys nicknamed him Booger. Billy would take him along on whiskey hauls and car races. He loved the excitement of it. Don Cooper immediately took to the Dixie Mafia lifestyle.
1: Riding shotgun listening to Jerry Lee Lewis or whoever with Billy Burt and a load of whiskey addicted Don to that life immediately. He was the last admitted to the Dixie Mafia in 1969, but he, he was the most loyal. But because he didn't have Humpty Dumpty's intelligence, he was stuck to doing many jobs like casing and stuff like that. Doing these, he never got deep. But he would burn a car. He would do anything he was asked to, no problem. Don went with him one night to uh, on a run, and because after the run there in Conyers, they was going to a, a nightclub, and Don rode with Daddy. Now the party became. Well, the party and the business were both exciting things. And one was about as fun as the other, you just didn't dance when you were robbing something.
0: It didn't take long after joining Billy's gang for Don Cooper to be fired from his job under suspicion that he was involved in a recent string of robberies concerning large amounts of money from the company. In just a matter of months, Coca-Cola had been robbed of almost $160,000.
1: Reese Spencer's place, just after he was admitted to this Mouth. this is what it done to him. I'm 10-year-old on dance world. Don's out there dancing with a woman. A man tries to cut it in. Don said, buddy, this woman's a me. Don's part of the daddy's gang, you know? So the guy tried to cut it in again. Don just whoops out the third day and said, Shot him twice in the mouth. Damn. Oh, Wasn't uncommon for Reese's place. Reese had the bouncer, grab the man, check him out, get him to the hospital. Only the hospital, they told him, look, here's what happened. He was outside, somebody come by, shot a distance, $5,000. man took it. Everybody was on the payroll. You know that within an hour, Don, and that woman was dancing on the floor again, that was just another Saturday night.
0: In the mid-1960s, Billy Sunday Burt and his Dixie Mafia were firing on all cylinders. In addition to the booming bootleg operation, the ever-expanding network of seedy, underworld clientele kept the money rolling in with contract arson and murder-for-hire jobs. They had also extended their services to procuring commodities like stealing gasoline by tapping into pipelines and sugar. that may sound odd at first, but when President JFK signed the Cuban Trade Embargo in 1962, halting the import of goods from Cuba, which was one of the U.S.'s largest sugar suppliers, the cost of sugar skyrocketed across America.
1: In to fill their larders in advance, people who never used sugar before suddenly developed insatiable cravings for the sweet
3: food complement.
0: This was a problem for bootleggers because it takes a lot of sugar to make whiskey. So, the boys found a workaround.
1: For 20%, my father run the whiskey, handled all the operations of run the whiskey, hijacked the sugar trucks that it kept to keep it going out of three states, because you could not get enough sugar unless you hijacked entire tractor trailers, and it took three states to keep it supplied. And just handled everything about it. For that, he got 20% of all the profit.
0: There were other ways of getting it, too. My name is Bob C. Brooks. living live in Monroe, Georgia,
3: retired banker. If I live another two months, I'll be 77. So I've been around a while.
0: Bob Brooks worked at Quality Foods Market as a stock boy when he was a teenager, a small grocery store that sold an astonishing amount of sugar.
3: When I was 15 years old at Quality Food Market, I got a job after school and on Saturday working there. They had me on Fridays, they'd bring in a tractor trailer load of sugar. We'd take it off the truck, put it in the basement of, of the quality market. And then the next day, we might have 10, 12 trucks come in and pick up hundred bags of sugar and whatever. And then by the end of Saturday night, it was gone. I knew that they could be selling that much sugar off the they had to be going somewhere.
0: In February of 1969, Jim Dawes, the owner of the grocery store, would go on to marry Ruth Chancey, who was the mother of Billy Burt's moonshine partner, Harold.
3: The only reason I knew was Dick's his daddy on the restaurant and the bakery across the street. And I asked him, I said, they can't sell that much sugar in Martin County. I mean, this was ever week. He said,
0: they're making a liquid, son. He said, you keep your mouth shut. It seemed at this point, there weren't enough hours in the day to get all the jobs done that Burt was being hired to do. When Harold Chancey introduced him to a new business he'd ventured into sometime between 67 and 68, he needed a little convincing.
1: Harold Chancey had made a contact with someone I don't know who, but I remember the day he walked in the pool room, and I remember him calling Dave behind the bar and showing him what was in his hands. I have seen them; they were black. He was telling daddy what they would do. He gave Denny a few.
0: What Harold showed Billy were called black beauties, which were extremely potent and controversial bioamphetamines that were marketed as diet pills in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I tell
3: you that the calimetric reducing formula is the only safe, sure, effective way to reduce. This package includes the wonder 10-day diet that lets you eat three delicious meals a day, plus a bedtime snack and uh, even includes a jog for your willpower.
1: And next thing I you know, my dad had a plastic bag and he was giving them to his boys. And from then on, it took a whole new level. It was six months after that, that he was going to Mexico, bringing back trunk loads. This sounds crazy, but they were in double sacked grocery bags, paper bags, old time. And what he brought back, what I seen in his boot, more than once, was those grocery bags almost full to the point that the top was folded over and taped.
0: By boot, he means the trunk of the car.
1: Once you haul a load of pills, and you pay 30 cents a piece, and you bring them back to sell for a dollar and a half a piece, and your trunk will hold 400000 do the math. But when the pills come along, that's when he began to have a 10-day work week was no longer seven days. He could go for three or four days at a time, and then he would sleep for two days. And that was a way of life. People like Ruth Chansey and Harold Chansey, Lee Gilstrap, international trucker at Gainesville who made millions hauling black beauties out of Mexico and doctors all over Georgia furnishing him with amphetamine, which was black beauties, but legal. They were called 18875s. They were black. Of what doctors prescribed, but it was called bioamphetamine, a mixture of two ingredients that ignited the flat or fat in you.
0: Black beauties were basically legal crystal meth, but made in a lab, not in someone's basement or in a trailer out in the desert, a la Breaking Bad. But they served the same purpose. You could stay awake for days at a time, be razor-focused with a seemingly endless supply of energy all without the need to even stop and eat much. The downside, they had some of the same side effects like paranoia, violence, and if you stayed awake long enough, visual and audible hallucinations. I asked Stoney if he noticed a change in his father after he started taking the pills.
1: Oh, yes, and yes I did. But this is what I noticed. My dad had always been exceptional athletically. He would always been smarter than anyone he always won every bet. he's always run every foot race he's always won every car race but once he started with the black pills he became bigger than life he became a legend to me his own son he done things that were impossible like climbing the back of Casey's like uh, shutting down highway 81 for five miles out of winding here and racing he just ruled the world well here's what's funny at about the same time, Elvis was doing the exact same thing with the exact same pills. Merle Haggard was, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee, and John, John Kennedy. It, it, it took the country by storm. And each one of those individuals became more than he ever could have been without it. It was nothing like crank, crack, meth, nothing similar. It was more to the tune of Adderall with a big, big boost. And you could take that every other day or through the week and sleep on weekends and lead an hourly appearance of a normal life. But it made you more of what you were. When I say the flatter fight, if you were the kind that fought and a situation arose, you was dynamite. If you were the kind that run and a situation arose, you was uh, Speedy Gonzalez.
0: And I'll admit, Billy Burt's pilled-up feats are pretty impressive. When Stoney mentioned climbing the wall, he's referring to the building next to the pool hall that is now a restaurant called Casey's. Apparently, one night the guys were joking around at the pool hall and Billy, who loved to be bet he couldn't do something just so he could prove you wrong, bet the guys that he could climb the corner of the building freehand, run along the roof of the building, and back down the other side in less than a minute. When Stoney first told me about this, I didn't really understand what the big deal was. So, he took me there to see it for myself.
2: Uh,
1: that pool room door, same one. Now this gate wasn't here, but here's the wall Ain't changed. He climbed this wall, top, run the back corner of the bookstore, down that wall back here under a minute. But even climbing a wall, give him five minutes. Hell, give him all day. Yeah, I don't know how the hell you do that. Now, you see getting to there, but you do not see climbing there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I see how you can get up a couple feet here, but I mean... It's the corner of a red brick building that's about 25 or 30 feet high. A small alley runs between Casey's and the building that used to house the pool hall. There are no obvious hand or footholds, and the sharp corners of the bricks dig into your hands when you try to grab hold. I tried and I couldn't get higher than a few feet before dropping. I started thinking it was impossible and wanted to call bullshit on the whole thing. But it seems there were several witnesses that saw Bert accomplish this. I guess my point in telling this story is that at least twice now, Stoney has made some seemingly unbelievable claim that I had doubted. And both times, I was proved wrong. The joke's on me, I guess. So... When Stoney said his dad and the boys used to regularly shut down a five-mile section of Highway 81 heading out of Winder to race their cars, I was a bit more open-minded than I was before. Stony and I hopped in the Torino Cobra and headed that way. Bush
1: Chapel Church is a black church it's been there since 1800s. This is always a starting point for the races, the five and 10-mile races, this way to Bowles Springs. They block off all the roads. This right here hill. Man standing right there, drop his hand, boom, those lanes. And all the roads, crossroads, be blocked for five or ten miles, they what the race was. And that went on, a hell, weekly. And many times when you, uh, at one of the crossroads, one of these guys with a shotgun would even stop the state patrol, whoever happened to, they'd be standing there, and when they flew by, him and Harold, who was racing him, the damn cop had money bet on one of them.
0: It was a perfect summer day when we took our ride. We had the windows down and the warm air felt good, so we kept driving. Stoney showed me around the area, and it seemed each few miles we drove, you would see something that would ignite an old memory, as was the case when we happened by a small private road and Stoney immediately slowed the car to a crawl. You know,
1: James Jackson, look at that, James Jackson Road, this is the Jackson farm.
0: Remember the man that took the family farm from young Billy Burt's mother and left them with nothing after his father died? Remember how young Billy swore that he would get back at the man? That Jackson farm.
1: This is where he come to kill the man. In this house here? This house here. But now, in this day, it was a real top-of-the-line house. When he come back, the man had done that. Four years when he come back at hey, 14. Woman coming door, I'm sorry sir, Jackson still living, how about that? I'm sorry, he, he, he passed. He said looking at her, look like she was on hard times. I thought about it, I said, hell, mama right, you read what you sold. Looked like that money he took from it didn't do no good, after all, he let it go. But I th- believe he done murdered that man he mind hundreds of times from nine-year-old to 14, come had to get him, and what kid does that?
0: Billy stayed busy with his obligations to the Dixie Mafia and worked hard to keep his family happy at the same time, being a good father to his children and, in his own way, being a good husband to Jenny. But things weren't perfect. Tension had begun to grow with another person in Billy's family.
1: Ray Bert was the, uh, he worked hard every day of his life in heavy equipment. He did not to my knowledge ever steal anything. His uh, his interest in life was uh, to be the best there ever was with his fist, not in golden gloves. He never had a boxing match, just in the being the fastest, baddest son bitch that ever lived because he was born with it.
0: Ray, the one that resembled Elvis, was the youngest of the Burt boys and was known by many as a bully. He had been most of his life. He was tough as nails strong, good looking, and could fight like no one else.
1: Ray just absolutely could not be whipped, not by normal people.
0: This is something I've heard many people say. I'm 59 years old. I've been to
1: prison twice, the roughest prisons in Georgia. I was raised in Honky Thompson. I've never seen a man in my life that could even start to compare to the skill that Ray Burt had when it came to fighting. He was so fast that he hit you three times before you even know you were in a fight, but the first lit would told
0: you. Ray also liked to drink. And when he did, he had a tendency to become jealous.
1: Where my daddy was jealous of his women, Ray was jealous of your Cadillac. And if you thought you was a bad dude who might could whoop his butt, the only thing gonna stop him from proving that wrong would be an act of God.
0: Hell, he enjoyed it so much so that the Winder Recreation Parlor had almost been closed down because of all the fighting that was happening there, among other things, which concerned Billy. He couldn't have that kind of attention drawn to the place. He repeatedly told Ray he needed to chill out. Ray would apologize, then drink again a few days later, and the whole cycle would start over. He had become predictable, in a bad way. Stoney remembers being at the pool hall one night, when Ray arrived already half drunk and rowdy.
1: So, on this particular night, when he decided to show himself and everybody in that beer joint, that he could hook Billy Burt, the baddest damn man they thought that ever was. Poo table there, poo table there. Ray's in between the pool table bar, which ain't a four foot apart. He's got a mug of beer, a frosted mug, i never forget it. And when he turned up to drink, They sat on a bar. When he walked the back of his hand, he looked at my dad, who was sitting from here to that about six feet away. And he said, and and I'm standing between them. My daddy's got his, uh, he's sitting on the pool, told my father is, with a rack on his shoulder. He said, Billy, I believe I can beat you. And I thought, it's a pool game. But when I looked at my father's face, You've heard me talk about that look? That's the first time I've seen it. He looked around at Ray, and he said, no, son, you can't. And Ray said, I believe I can. I know I can. And my father used just like this, he's two-factor, but he kept the other one's on hip, nah, nah, I knew why later. He said, Ray, it's a goddamn impossibility if you beat me. He said I Get the hell out of here. You ain't getting my place closed down. Hit the door. Just exactly like that. He stood there for about a few seconds, looking at him. No fear anymore.
0: Despite being his brother, Ray Burt had just challenged the most dangerous man in Georgia.
1: Slowly he walked to the door, which is 25 foot away. When he got the door, now my father never left that table. And I never moved where I was between them. And the people who had started listening realized something was about to happen. Ray got in the door he turned around and looked. And this was about 9 30 on Saturday night. He said, Billy, I'm leaving, but I'll be back. And he said, with the same two fingers, he said, Ray, don't come back tonight. Ray walked out. He looked at me. He said, Get a cab home. I said, But then it's only 9 30. He said, I said, did a third damn cab home that look. I called a cab, within five minutes I was at home. 25 minutes later, Bush to pulled up to the yard to tell me and my mother that Billy had just shot Ray. He got a phone call from someone, told the Ray to come back with a gun. Ray walked in there. They expected to have a gun, but that wasn't it. All Ray though, walk up, hit him right there in the side. It had his peripheral vision. He said, it almost took me out. If he knocked me out, it'd have been over. He said, but, but he was ready. He spun me around, and before he hit the ground, he shot Ray three times. Well, one of them went through Ray and parted Otis's hair. Otis kept that apart until they died. Busch Chance immediately pulled out a barlow knife and laid and raised hands. Him did look, the rest of the people in there, by this time they dwindled down to from 30 to 10, half of them being this size boys. So, uh, boys, this is a story. Anybody got a problem with better leave now.
0: He was arrested and taken to the local jailhouse. But because of his reputation in the small town and the sheriff wanting no part of it, Billy was released because it was decided that he shot Ray in self defense. The sheriff just told him to leave. He didn't even pay a fine. Billy Burt shot his brother three times in public, nearly killing him, and spent only one night in jail. Ray was in intensive care for three months, but he lived. When he got out of the hospital, he seemed to cool his jets a bit and lay low, at least, for the time being. By the time 1970 arrived, Billy Sunday Burt and his Dixie Mafia were untouchable. It had become clear to those in the know by now that if you talked, you disappeared. There were already at least 26 people missing, and Billy Burt had no intention of slowing down. And all the while, young Stoney who had a front row seat to the inner workings of the Dixie Mafia, was slowly being molded into his father's footsteps. Things continued to escalate, and the feds had finally decided that something must be done about Billy and his gang, because local law enforcement had proven unable or unwilling to get a handle on the situation. They had an ace up their sleeve named James Earl West, and they were about to up the ante. The members of the Dixie Mafia, whether they knew it or not, were living on borrowed time.
1: That is when GBI law enforcement stepped it up a notch. That's when the tables turned.
0: In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kuype and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay, is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at InTheRedClayPodcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.